Well, good morning to you all. It's good to see you. And we are continuing our look at the Psalms. Just so you have a bird's eye view of where we're going, we're, uh, we're going to continue preaching the Psalms through Labor Day weekend. So that'll bring us through Psalm 14. And then we'll start the new fall preaching series that I'm really excited about, but I'm going to wait on telling you about just to, uh, to hold you in anticipation of the next series. But this morning, we're looking at Psalm chapter 11. And uh, through the summer, we've looked at you know, several different types of psalms. We've looked at uh, several psalms of lament. We've looked at a psalm of wisdom. We've looked at a psalm of praise. But I think this morning is the first time that we've come across a psalm of confidence. And what we see here this morning is that David, um, this is another psalm of David, but David composes a psalm of confidence that's meant to describe for God's people what it looks like to, to retain confidence and poise in the midst of extreme adversity, in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. What does it look like for, for us, uh, rooted, as those who are rooted in faith and loved by a great God, to uh, retain our confidence and uh, not lose ourselves in the midst of, of real difficulty? So let's look at this together. This is Psalm 11. Uh, there, I'll read all seven verses. Hear the word of the Lord. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot the dark at the upright, to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, you know uh, where we are all coming from, uh, what our lives look like, uh, what we come from as we enter into a room like this. Um, And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear from this passage in such a way that we would leave here deeply encouraged, um, that our faith would be strengthened, uh, and that our lives with you would be nourished in such ways that we can re-enter the things that we came from with joy. Uh, Hold us fast. And Father, I pray for me, uh, your servant, to love these friends well and to honor you with the things that I say. Help me in Jesus' name, I pray. And amen. Now, I don't know why, but uh, over the course of this week, as I've you know, returned again and again to, to this psalm to look at it, uh, the, the old video game, one of the, one of the original video games uh, just kept coming to mind. Do you remember the game Frogger? Can I see some nodding heads? Okay. Kids, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home after church, and I want you to ask your parents to bring up the video game Frogger on YouTube so you can see what I'm talking about. And I just need to ask you not to write me off immediately as soon as you see it, okay? Um, it was it, Like back in 1985 or so, the early to mid-80s, Frogger was the jam, okay? You would go to the arcade. Hey, an arcade was where people actually hung out together, okay? <laughs> but you would go to the arcade, and right next to some of the more famous timeless games like Pac-Man, 
Pac-Man and Tetris, you would see a long line at Frogger. And people would line up waiting to just pump quarters into uh, the video game machine, which was massive, and, uh, in order to play. And, uh, and the way it worked was really, really simple. You just kind of had your frog, and you had to jump across a road or a river or something like that. It was filled with hazards, and you had to kind of use the environment around you and make your way from one end to the other. It was a simpler time, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, you would pass the level, and each level would get, you know, more difficult until you got to the point where it just, you would look at the, 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 whatever it is you had to make your way across, you would look at it, and it just looked impossible. Like the, 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 the challenge in front of you, of you was so severe, uh, and uh, the, the landscape was moving so fast, that it just felt impossible to keep trying, and it felt like a waste to keep trying and throwing your 25-cent coins into the machine, and you would just, you know, you would kind of get up and just walk away. And I bring all that up to just say this, that sometimes, like, life can feel that way. Like, there, there are times when we can look at the landscape, the horizon of our lives, and all we see are difficult challenges. There, there are times where it can feel so uncertain, the landscape is changing so rapidly that withdrawing just seems like a viable option to us. And that's actually the, uh, the counsel that these advisors are giving to David. They tell him that, uh, that they tell him in verse one to flee like a bird to your mountain, to, to, to withdraw. And David responds with all kinds of reasons why he can retain confidence even in the midst of extreme adversity no matter what he sees or what he hears he is instructing us and God is instructing us of what it looks like for us to return to things that we know to be true about who God is and our relationship to him and so what I'm going to say is that what we see here in this passage are really two different arguments being made It begins, and these are the first few verses, it begins with advisors to David, advisors to King David, articulating an argument for despair. And David responds to their argument with his own argument for hope. And so that's what I'm talking about, is an argument, arguments for despair, arguments for hope. Those are the two points. And as we look at these first few verses, what what we see what I would just call a really sound and reasonable argument for despair is what we see here. It begins with, it's an honest argument. Look at, look at verse 2. It says, there are wicked people. It describes a situation where there are wicked people who uh, have their bows bent, their arrow is knocked, it's aimed at your heart, and, uh, and they've got us. They've got us cornered, is what they say. Now, I'm not sure which scenario in, in David's life or even if it's recorded in scripture, what scenario this psalm is particularly describing. It's interesting that it's, they tell him to flee like a bird to your mountain, because there, there, there is a story where David charged Psalm with, uh, with hunting him like a partridge in the mountains. I mean, it's kind of interesting. And, I, and I'm not actually sure it's describing a, a battle situation, although it probably is. It could be, you know, it could be a, a really difficult political circumstance or something that's closer to home like a family betrayal or something like that. But either way, the, 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 the point is really clear in this verse. It's, there's an attack that's coming. It's lethal and it's imminent. And the honesty here is that, hey, they've got us. 
Like these enemies of ours have us cornered and there's very little that we can do about it is what they're saying. And so that's an honest argument for despair. And that's immediately followed by by what I would see as just a simply logical argument for despair. You see that in verse 3. It says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And you can read that verse a couple of different ways. Either way, it means the same thing. These foundations that are being described could be David himself as one of the foundations of life in Israel. And if the king has taken out, then people he loves will suffer. Or foundations could be, you know, the principles that undergird a proper ordering of their life together. And uh, either way, what it's saying is that they're making the logical argument of the, of the, like, the logical outcome of what would happen if David were taken out of the picture. And so they make this honest argument, and they make a logical argument, and all this comes together to be what I would call is an effective argument for despair. Several years ago, a man, I know some of you have, have, uh, have read some of his books, a guy named Jonathan Haidt uh, wrote a book. Um, if you've not heard of him, he's a, he's a social psychologist and a professor at NYU, so he's one of those guys. He makes brilliant observations and arguments. I found him personally helpful. I'm still wrestling with some of his stuff. But uh, he wrote a book uh, several years ago called The Righteous Mind. What is this? The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Just a page turner. Uh, and, and what he does is he looks at some of the origins of our moral reasoning. Like why we think the things we do and carry the convictions we have. And, and why it can be so hard for us to disagree with each other over things that matter most to us. Like, you know, like politics and like religion. And uh, he makes this interesting point. He says, the best way to persuade someone of something, this is what he says, the best way to persuade someone is by appealing to their sentiments. And I, I, I look at this, this argument for despair and think that's exactly what's happening in this passage. I, I don't actually think that these advisors are unreasonable. I think what they're doing is they're coming to David and they, they're advising him and what they think are David's best self-interest. And I say all that to say this. There are times in our lives when despair just seems reasonable. You know despair. I mean, we can feel despair in all kinds of different ways, right? And we can despair over things like money. Like when, when it just feels like we never have enough. We can despair over our families when relationships are torn and we wonder if they might be repaired in some way, if reconciliation is even possible. We can despair over the, the, the trajectory of our lives where it feels like it's going somewhere and there's nothing we can do to, to control it or to, to, to guide it in a certain way that we would like. We can despair over our children, right? When we've used feels like we've used every tool in our parenting toolbox and nothing seems to be working. Despair can come to us from all kinds of different ways and at times it can, it can just feel reasonable. I was uh, uh, talking with a, a friend of mine, this was several years ago, and he was, he, was, uh, and he was, his wife was leaving him and it was just a terribly sad story. And he... Uh, he described it this way. He described what he was feeling this way. He said, I wake up every day with this tremendous 
sinking feeling that everything is going a certain way and there's nothing I can do to stop it. That's probably the best definition of despair that I've ever heard. And listen, here's the thing. When, when despair seems reasonable to us, and it is, it is creating space in our hearts where it is governing us, then in that case, withdrawal, withdrawal, uh, will be, we will withdraw to places of refuge that we think are safe. We will, we will withdraw. And in this passage, what we see is they're telling him to flee like a bird to, to his mountain. And what that, to David, what that would mean is that he, as king of Israel, as God's anointed king of Israel, with this godly divine call placed on his life to abandon his post and abandon his people, that's what it would look like for David. But my question for you and for me is, what does it look like when we withdraw in despair? Like maybe when we might hide from certain people or avoid certain responsibilities because we're in despair. And what does it look like for you to withdraw? I think the silent treatment can be a particularly cruel form of withdrawal. It can look like people leaving obligations that they've made. What, what might it look like for you? And listen, uh, th- please don't hear what I'm not saying. I've got to offer this qualification to you. There are times where wisdom dictates that we pull away, right? There are dangerous relationships, you know, the, 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 where wisdom dictates that we pull away. The, the pandemic is a good example for us. Like we, had to pull, we have to pull away for a time in order to... Pre- protect each other, okay? Sometimes wisdom dictates that, and that's not what I think we're talking about here. What we're actually talking about here is when despair takes such a root in our heart that it, that it isolates us. And that's the, that's the logical end of an argument for despair. And that's why I think it's particularly powerful in this passage when David begins to respond to this by injecting the reality of who God is into the conversation. And what he does when he, 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 fundamentally, he, he fundamentally reorients the way that he completely sees the circumstance that they're in together. And, and because of who God is, he's able to articulate a, just a wonderfully, tremendously encouraging, confidence-building argument for hope. And he begins this argument for hope by talking about glory. Look at this. He says, uh, he says verse 4, the Lord is in his... His holy temple. His throne is in heaven. And what David is saying here is important. He's saying that no matter what happens to me, or the way that this plays out, I have a God who sits on the throne and presides over all things. And David's confidence in in God's glory anchors him in his hope. And then he begins to talk about faith. Look at at verse 5. It says, His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man, the Lord tests the righteous. He's saying, he, he's looking at the scenario and saying, my faith is being tested. Now, to, now God's testing of faith, some, some of us have a weird relationship, like, we don't like to hear that necessarily. That can sound odd to us, right? Like the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 11, we look at that and think, what is God doing to these people? Like, we think about God testing our faith and wonder, is he playing games with his people? But here's what I want you to understand is that when the Lord tests our faith and he brings us through trials, 
He's not just revealing to us and to him the content of our faith or the strength of our faith. What he's revealing, what he's doing is he's actually deepening us in faith and strengthening us in faith through, through testing. James chapter 1 says that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And like a precious metal is strengthened with fire, what we see is that David's faith is actually being strengthened through adversity and not weakened. And so it's his faith that serves as this wonderful anchor for him, that anchors him in hope. So he talks about glory, then he talks about faith, and then he begins to talk about divine love. And he says, the wicked will suffer their punishment. But the Lord loves the righteous. Look at verse 7. This is incredibly beautiful. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his faith. His face. David is convinced that there will come a time because God spread his divine love over him. That there will come a time where David will behold God face to face. This is a picture of what intimacy with God might look like. In Exodus, Moses, it says that there's this sweet little verse. It says that Moses would talk to God face to face as a man talks with his friend. And David is so convinced of the unconditional love of God that's extended toward him. That God God has covered David in love. He's so convinced of divine love that it anchors him in his hope. Uh, there's a great example of where he does this. And it's just a, you see the way that the lenses of how he sees that the adversity are completely different. What he's done is he's, he's replaced the myopic lens that leads to despair with a providential lens that leads to hope. It's a completely different way of viewing it. David did this when he was, um, when he, uh, as a young man, when he faced Goliath. Y'all remember that story? David, uh, I mean, it's just a tremendous story, you know. But David, David's willing to fight the Philistine champion who is this hulking behemoth of a man. Everybody's afraid of him. Because everybody was looking at Goliath and saying, it would be foolish to go up and face this guy. They think it would be foolish to face him. But David looked at him and said, it's foolish for him to face the armies of the living God. Do you see how his perspective is completely different? And so this is what I, got, this is what I want to challenge you with. It's, it's a, how do you view your life and the world that you exist in, the challenges that are in front of you? You are either in a trial right now or, or you will be in one. And, and the challenge for you is what lens are you looking through as you face these things? Are you looking through a lens that leads to hope? Or are you looking through a lens that leads to despair? Over, uh, over, the, over, the past, um, over the past week, actually, we've, studied, we've begun to do some leadership training around here. You may have heard about it. It was incredibly sweet. If you were there on Monday night, it was awesome. Uh, I loved being there with you guys. And we're reading a book together written by a pastor named Jack Miller. Some of you have heard his name. Um, and I'm reading it for the first time. I'm reading it along with you because I haven't read it before. But there's this letter that really struck me. This is a guy who, whose heart just oozes gospel truth. And uh, there's, uh, he's writing this letter to a, um, a young missionary couple that's thinking about leaving the mission field. 
uh, and he writes this letter to them, and, the, and he doesn't answer the question for them. He doesn't presume to say stay or go or anything like that. But what he does do is he reorients them back to their understanding of who God is and the call that he's placed on their lives. He says, think about that. Let that guide the way that you think. And then he injects this quote from his wife, Rosemarie, which is so beautiful. She said, it's important not to decide hastily like an orphan in flight, but like a son who knows his father's unconditional love. And friends, it's right there. This is not about how clever you are and your ability to match whatever you're challenged with. This is, this is about what it looks like to be so anchored in the truth of the things that God says about you, the things that Jesus has done for you, the things that the Holy Spirit is proclaiming to your heart that anchor you in hope, that even, even in the midst of suffering, we can have confidence that God is the one who redeems and delivers and promises the time when he will renew all things, including you. And what we have in this picture is a picture, what we have in this passage is a picture of what it means to hold fast in life because there's someone who is actually holding you fast. And that is to say that the only reason, the only reason that we don't lose ourselves completely in the midst of difficulty is because you are loved by Jesus, your Savior, and he is not giving up on you ever. We are held fast in the hope of glory. We're held fast in the hope of glory because Jesus is the one who surrendered his glory when he faced the cross. And it's right there. It's right there in the the crucifixion of Jesus that we see that we don't need to be afraid of eternal judgment because, because that is right there where our sins were paid for. And we're held in fast in the hope of faith because Jesus rose from the dead. And it's right there in the resurrection of Christ that we find that his new life is our new life and not even death, not even death, my friends, because of Jesus can separate us from the love of God won for us in Jesus Christ. And we're held fast in the hope of divine love because Jesus promises that he will return. And friends, it is right there. It is right there in the second coming of Jesus that we find our hope is not bound up in this life, but in the life that is to come, and that one day you and I will sit at a table together. And we, it's the table that this table points to. And we will be face to face with Jesus as a man is with his friend. And so you are held fast. You can hold fast because you are held fast. The story of Peter that I had us read earlier this morning that Allison read. Thanks for reading that, Allison. Jesus predicts. Jesus predicts, right? He predicts that he will, he, he will go into Jerusalem and he will suffer and he will die at the hands of his enemies. And Peter simply, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus, but he's simply articulating what anybody probably would have felt. And I think in that instance, Peter was actually thought of himself as functioning as one of Jesus's advisors, counseling him in what he thought was Jesus's best self-interest. And Jesus, Jesus looks back and rebukes him back. And what does he say? You do not have the things 
of God in mind, but the things of man. You are looking at this all differently. And in that story, we get a picture, we get the idea that Jesus isn't going to let, let anything get between him and the cross. You know why? Because he is so committed to you. Because he is all wrapped up in you. Because his divine love is spread over you. And if Jesus, the one who by all things are held together, is committed to you, then we can be confident. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, this is a heavy challenge for us, but it's a good one. So I pray that you would teach us, your people, to meditate on things that are good, things that are from above, things that you have for us. Convince us of these truths and deepen us in faith. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.